All right. All right. All right. How's everybody doing? Good. Having a good night. I, uh, so I watched a little bit of football. Uh, Amos tried to get a nap, and I tried to get a nap, and I tried to watch a little football. So the Vikings won, right, Mike? That's good. Let's keep it going, all right? Let's keep it going. So uh, thank you for being here this evening. Uh, I really do appreciate it. So over the next, uh, so Pathways in September, October, November, and the first part of December are going to be for um, just abbreviated teachings uh, on the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're a church that has always uh, prioritized the place of the Spirit in the lives of followers of Jesus. And it's while it's this vitally important thing that, uh, especially in the New Testament, is spoken about often by the Apostle Paul, it is a neglected piece of our theology uh, in the church, not as much in the church globally anymore, uh, but most certainly in the church in the United States. It's a neglected piece of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We talk about the Holy Spirit um, in a general sense. Uh, people who, Orthodox Christians, have a, obviously a fundamental belief that the Holy Spirit is uh, a member of the Trinity, but yet um, they don't emphasize the work of the Holy Spirit in any specific way, and they don't teach on it very often in a very systematic way. And so, um, what I want to do is really just teach, uh, this will be, this will feel, uh, m m thank you, Josh, appreciate it. No, I'm super fast with the, with the reflexes. That's why I was such a, such an awesome athlete. <laughs> uh, but, um, so, uh, what I'm envisioning for, uh, these next few pathways is that they be kind of a combination of encounter with the Spirit, but also teaching with the Spirit. So, the next kind of 15 minutes is going to be, um, a little, a little bit more of a classroom than it is, a, will be a preaching, uh, venue. So, if you have notes in your Bible, it'll be helpful for you to bring, take that out, because I will be running through a lot of Scripture. I assume that if you come to this gathering, you have a Bible, you're familiar with the Bible, you know where to turn, uh, that's something I don't always assume on Sunday mornings, just because we have more people in the space, and I, and I also and I always want to create an environment where people who are unfamiliar with faith in Jesus feel comfortable. Uh, but when it's us in this space tonight, uh, we'll we'll rifle through things a little bit. All right, does that sound good? All right, <laughs> Carol, get out. No, I'm joking. As I say often, there's one under the seat in front of you. And if you don't have it, if you don't have a Bible at home, Carol, you can take it with you. Uh, okay. All right. Good. Good, good. Carol's probably got enough Bibles at home for all of us. All right. So uh, we are talking about the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. And when we, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, when, what comes to most people's mind when they think about the Holy Spirit is kind of just an amorphous blob. <laughs> we don't think of the Holy Spirit as being a personal force in the world very often. Many Christians think of the Father, the Son, and the Holy right? It just kind of trails off at the end because Father, I can get my head around. Son, Jesus, obviously a human being who lived on the earth, and there's all these stories in the scriptures about him. I can get my head around that idea. But the idea of coming to an understanding of who the person of the Holy Spirit is, is a little bit difficult. But yet, Christians from the very beginning have affirmed that God exists in, in God's very essence as, as uh, both one singular God, 
but in three distinct persons. So this is the belief in the Trinity. And so when I teach on the Holy Spirit, I, most, I very much want to teach on it, um, on him, uh, based on a Trinitarian view of God. Because the Spirit is not the Spirit alone, right? The Spirit is the Spirit as the Spirit relates to both the Father and the Son. This is how Christians talk about the Holy Spirit. Uh, the issue is, and the reason we're kind of isolating this third member of the Trinity when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, is like I said, very often we don't emphasize the Holy Spirit. And the reason that that is, is because the language that is sometimes used in the Bible to talk about the Holy Spirit is hard to get your minds around. In the Old Testament, the word for spirit is ruach. It's, it sounds like Klingon, but it's not. Uh, and it means just wind or breath or spirit. Um, sometimes in the, in the Hebrew, that word means life force almost. So ruach is something that God breathed into man and gave him life. But it's also used to talk about God's spirit in some specific way. So there's a little bit of flexibility in the language in the Old Testament, which is why we don't build a theology of the spirit based solely on the Old Testament, though we can pull from that place and put things together. In the New Testament, the word that's used to tra is, that's often translated spirit is uh, pneuma, pneuma. Uh, which is a funny word because we don't usually put P's and M's together like that in English. But uh, it is very similar to Ruach in its, under, in, in its etymology and what it, what it means. It means kind of wind, breath, spirit. It is the word that Jesus uses when he says um, uh, uh, that we don't know where the spirit, like the, the, the spirit is like the wind and we don't know where, where he comes or where he's going, but we can see his effects basically is what Jesus talks about. And because of this language being very elemental almost, it can lead us to assume that the Spirit is not personal. The Spirit is rather a kind of nebulous force in the world that God uses or is, or is, a, or is an extension of God, in a sense, uh, that's more of a force than it is a person. But when we, when we dig into the New Testament, what we discover is that the Holy Spirit is not just a nebulous force. There is language, specifically in the New Testament and Old Testament, about the Spirit being... Um, being forceful, being the, and the agent of God's action in the world, but it's more than that. It's more than that, and so uh, I kind of want to talk about tonight this idea that the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person, and so what we're going to do is walk through some texts with you, some passages of scripture with you tonight, hopefully uncover some ideas that maybe you're not familiar, you haven't uh, been highly familiar with, so that we can kind of get our head around what the Spirit is and what the Spirit does, and why the Bible talks about the Spirit in kind of uh, a lot of different ways, then part of, that's part of the issue, is that when the, when the Apostle Paul is teaching about the Spirit in his letters, he uses multiple different types of words to describe what the Spirit is, and so we're going to break those down and kind of try to help us explain it. Does that make sense? So that's where we're headed in the next 12 minutes. We'll see how far we get. So um, one thing that helps us realize that the Spirit is a person is that in the New Testament, and particularly in the letters of Paul, the Spirit is, uh, uh, Paul uses the, the idea of the Spirit or the Holy Spirit uh, as having, as being the subject of or being the agent behind uh, verbs that require agency. So we're going to English school for a little bit. In order to do certain verbs, one must have personhood or agency. Does this make sense? So, um, so here are some examples of, of what I mean. Describing it won't make sense, but if, if I show you. So in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10, 
the Spirit searches all things. So the Spirit is one who can search things. In, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 2.11, so a couple of these are taken from 1 Corinthians 2. There's a really uh, instructive passage on the Holy Spirit. The Spirit knows the mind of God. How can a non-personal entity know something, right? Uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 2.12, the, the Holy Spirit teaches uh, the gospel to believers. The Holy Spirit, uh, Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit is the agent in the world that teaches believers the gospel, which is a thing that is interesting to us that we may not have thought about. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, the Spirit dwells amongst believers, right? Something that you would assume a person would do. Uh, if you want these afterwards, I can give them to you, by the way. Uh, in Galatians 5.18 and in Romans 8.11, we're told that the Spirit leads, right? That the Spirit leads us or leads our way to God. That the Spirit is the one uh, out in front of us leading us to God, which is a beautiful idea as well, right? That the Spirit is our leader. And then in Ephesians 4.30, the Spirit is grieved. The Spirit is grieved. How can a non-personal entity be grieved, right? To feel that emotion, you have to have personhood. You have to have conscience or consciousness. consciousness. And so uh, we, we know from these passages that there's something happening when Paul's talking about the Spirit that is more than just an impersonal force because there's these, there are all these active personal verbs being used about the Spirit. So we get this clue that there's something else going on. So uh, if you have your Bibles, look, we'll look specifically at Romans Eight, beginning in verse 16, because I think this is instructive for us this evening. Fire drill, whatever they called it in Sunday school, where you have to find Romans 8. Sword drill, fire drill. That's when you get out of your car and run around it at a red light. Right? All right. Sorry, doing this one-handed is hard. All right, so in Romans 8, 16, beginning in verse 16. So we, we read this. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And I'm just going to keep reading. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs to God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory, beginning in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth uh, right up to this present time. Uh, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we, wait eager, as we await eagerly, eagerly our adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for uh, what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And then beginning in verse 26. In the same way the Spirit helps in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray, for the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans and words uh, that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts, so right, this, 
There's this incredible element of agency here. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. So what we see here is a, is a, is a being who both knows us intimately, leads us, and helps us to pray, right? Uh, I think this, for Paul, is probably his most fundamental understanding of the working of the Spirit within the context of the church, with the context of those who are already Christians. The Spirit is an empowering presence, but the Spirit is very much one who see, uh, beginning uh, in verse 26, uh, who helps us in our weakness, who empowers us, right? Uh, who intercedes for us, who knows our hearts, who penetrates the, the, our, our minds, our hearts, the, the core of our being, and allows us to come to God in some really interesting ways. The Spirit is this, um, is this agent in the world who actually enables followers of Jesus to be followers of Jesus. Without the Spirit, there is no following Jesus in Paul's mind, right? The Spirit is the active agent of God's work in our uh, interior hearts, but also uh, the active agent of God's work in the world. Now, notice that dependence upon the Spirit is a necessity here in this passage because what are we in Paul's language? We are weak. We have weakness. We are fundamentally weak. And thus, the, it, is it is a necessity that the Spirit be coupled with our weakness, coupled with our weakness, so that we can follow Jesus effectively. Does this make sense? Without the Spirit coupled to our weakness, which is the gift of God, uh, in salvation, right? Without the Spirit coupled to our weakness, we can't actually go about the business of being followers of Jesus. It is, a, it is a necessity. It is something we have to do. Now, the reason it's important for us to realize this is because when we come to a realization of our own weakness, we, um, that puts us into a place of dependence. And Paul, I think, in this passage would seem to lend to the fact that as we lean on, as we become dependent upon the Spirit, the activity of the Spirit is kind of opened up in our heart. Does this make sense? So there's, there's this place, in the same way that um, one can believe in Jesus, but not depend on Jesus, and thus their, their journey as a Jesus follower is kind of lessened because of their lack of dependence. Does this make sense? Uh, in the same way, I think our dependence on the Holy Spirit as a person is important, because if we don't depend on the Spirit, we don't access the resources made available to us by God in his spirit. Does this make sense? It's like if you have a bank account full of money, but you don't use it, right? It's of no use to you at that point. You, it does not avail you anything if you have $100,000 in the bank and you don't use it, right? So spend all your money before you die is the moral of the story. So this is the function of the Spirit. But one thing I want to emphasize for us tonight is that the, the, the Holy Spirit is always the tr is always Always, always. I, I, this is one area where I feel like Pentecostals have struggled, actually, as we've emphasized. Uh, Charismatics Pentecostals have struggled, actually, as we've emphasized the work of the Spirit. As we have not, uh, we have a robust theology of the Spirit, but we don't have a robust theology of the Trinity. And when you take the Spirit and you kind of, and you kind of cordon him out away from the, all of God in the Trinity, what you have is a I think this is where many of the abuses that occur in charismatic churches happen because we've removed the Spirit from the Trinity and we don't have this robust historic Christian faith and we can get kind of sideways and weird. Does that make sense? Um, and so it's important that we realize part of the, uh, what, um, 
that the Spirit is the triune Spirit, and that one of the ways that we realize this the best is by understanding the way that Paul talks about the Spirit. So Paul uh, references this word pneuma over 140 times in the New Testament. Sometimes he's not referring to the Holy Spirit in the way we think of it, um, but uh, of those 140 occurrences of pneuma in the letters of Paul, the <coughs> he uses the full proper name of uh, the Holy Spirit 17 times, 17 times. And then Paul uses the full, uh, but he uses the full name of the Spirit. If that sounds like a, not very much to you, he uses the full name of the Spirit at the same ratio that he uses the full name of Jesus, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you see Paul use Jesus' full, that's his full title that, that Paul uses. He uses that title at about the same rate as he uses the title of the Spirit. So he uses his full name 17 time, times. He designates the Spirit of God, or quote, or quote, his Spirit, 17 times. So he's associating the Spirit with God 17 times. And then uh, he calls the Spirit the Spirit of Christ three times, right? Uh, and this is what uh, the, the New Testament scholar Gordon Fee says. He says, there can be little question that Paul sees the Spirit sees that the Spirit is distinct from God, yet at the same time the Spirit is both the uh, interior expression of the unseen God's personality and the visible manifestations of, of God ex God's activity in the world. And so what he's saying here is that this Spirit that is distinct from God, that is a person, is very much wedded to the Trinity. It's very much wedded to the Trinity. That uh, Apart from God the Father and God the Son, we don't have God the Spirit. Right? These three realities come in tandem. And the, part of the reason it, this is so important is because one of the primary uh, responsibilities of the Spirit is to reveal the Son, we learn in Scripture. That the, that the uh, part of the reason that Paul refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ is that the Spirit's active responsibility in the world is to continue the work of Christ by revealing Christ to people's hearts and by continuing the work of Christ's redemption and renewal in the world. Does this make sense? Um, if you remove Christ from the Spirit, the Spirit just becomes some nebulous force that makes people do things. But when you wed uh, the Spirit to Christ and to the Father, right, you have this beautiful triune relationship, this, this God of interpersonal love. Um, I, I'm, I was going to go to a weird Latin phrase there, but I'm not going to... Um, if you want to ask me what homoousios is after church, you can do that. Uh, but you have this, uh, you have this triune nature in God. That's this beautiful inner relationship, and that, and the Spirit's primary job is not necessarily to draw attention to the Spirit itself, but rather to reveal Christ to people's hearts. And so, when we emphasize the role of the Spirit, when we interact with the Spirit as a person, it, the the reality of Christ is always close behind. Early Pentecostals, uh, when you go to college and you study these things, you're, you're forced to read early Pentecostals uh, in the early part of the 20th century. And um, a, the primary sign that uh, this group of Pentecostals in England, uh, when I was, I was reading some old papers, uh, they said the primary sign of the Spirit's activity in the life of a believer is love for Jesus. That's it. That's what they said. That, so they would talk about a baptism in the Holy Spirit. And the thing that they said would be the primary sign of said baptism in the Holy Spirit was renewed love for Christ. Right? 
sometimes uh, in Pentecostal circles, we can emphasize all the stuff that the, that the Holy Spirit can do for us, not the way in which the Holy Spirit magnifies Christ in our hearts. And I think that's the primary responsibility of the Spirit in the life of the Christian. So um, in Romans 8, so go back to Romans 8, verses 9 through 11. This is what Paul says. You, ho- you who, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ, right? So the Spirit of Christ, notice he's talking about the Spirit in a personal sense, but then he transitions and starts to talk about the Spirit of Christ, right? The Spirit of Christ does not, um, uh, sorry, I'm going to read verse 9 again. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Interesting, right? But in Christ is, uh, but if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who lives in you, right? Do you see the, the way in which the spirit's work and Christ's work is just kind of interwoven together, almost to the point that you can't separate these two ideas. And that's the point, right? That, that the triune God is this uh, beautiful and unified uh, being, right, in three persons. It's, I know it's complicated. We can talk about it later. Um, but, uh, but anytime we separate out the Spirit, so, it, so here's the tension in my heart and in my head when I think about this. We need to, we need to identify the Spirit as a person, as having personal agency, right, as being distinct in and of the Spirit self, and yet the Spirit's primary responsibility, job, and association is with God, our Heavenly Father, and, and God the Son. And, if, and it's that tension that we walk, especially in charismatic Pentecostal traditions, where we can sometimes separate the, the, the people of the Trinity in, in a way that, I, that really makes us pretty quickly unbiblical. But the uh, robust theology of the, of the Spirit weds the Spirit tightly to the Trinity, but while also identifying the personal role of the Spirit in our lives and His active functioning in the church. The, o- the oldest prayer we know of, not out of the Bible, but the oldest prayer we know of in the church from historical record is the prayer, Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Come personal presence of God. Come active uh, active arm, active person of God's presence, come in our midst, be here. Now, this is not an acknowledgement that the Holy Spirit is like three blocks down the road, it's a <laughs> and he needs to get here. Um, he'll just take an Uber. He'll just take an Uber. Um, no, this is an acknowledgement that we, as God's people, are, uh, are acknowledging our dependence on the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Uh, it doesn't Okay, you can laugh. It's good. Uh, uh, so, if the Spirit does anything in our lives, if the Spirit does anything in our lives, He affirms Christ for us. Uh, one of the one of the ways that we know that we know that somebody has gone a little loopy is if they emphasize the work of the Spirit, but they don't see the Spirit's primary role as emphasizing Christ in our hearts. And so, that for me is the litmus test, right? When when there's certain, sometimes people in charismatic circles get up in arms because things get a little wonky. Uh, and, and my primary, the primary question that I ask in my heart is Christ still being 
is Christ still being made the center of that expression? And if Christ is still being made the center of that expression, though I might not subscribe to everything that happens there, I would say it's still within the bounds of Scripture. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, um, so, so basically, spirit people are Jesus people, right? Spirit people are Jesus people. P- spirit people are triune God, Orthodox Christian people. Uh, they're people who identify uh, with the Holy Spirit, who see the Spirit as a person, but also understand the Spirit as, um, as a part of the triune God. So uh, I want to I conclude this evening with this quote from uh, a lot of what we're going to talk about over the next couple pathways comes from this book um, by the, the New Testament scholar Gordon Fee, Paul the Spirit and the People of God. This is a condensed version of like an 800-page scholarly book that he wrote that I re- read a little bit of in school, but now I just read this because it's like the Cliff Notes version of that one, and I'm lazy. Uh, but uh, Gordon Fee was a, was, a, was a New Testament scholar who uh, w- was credentialed with the Assemblies of God, so he's from our denomination. Um, I have friends who know him well and know him to be an incredible uh, man of God, an incredible person, and, so, and also probably one of the three or four most important living New Testament scholars today. So a great guy to read if you're ever interested in that. A really good preacher, too, if you ever want to look him up on YouTube. So... So this is how, uh, how Fee concludes this chapter that he has on uh, the Holy Spirit as a person. Uh, he says this, The implications of this for the contemporary church are enormous. Uh, whereas we pay lip service to the reality of our Trinitarian confessions, in practice the majority of Christians tend towards believing in the oblong blur of uh, my young student, because he tells that story. The result is that the implications of the renewed presence of God by his spirit noted in the preceding chapter scarcely inspire believers in one direction or the other. Surely the reality that God is personally present in and amongst us should encourage us through the um, exegesis, uh, through the, sorry, uh, that's a really big theological word that I can't even read right now the exogenesis and weaknesses of our present life, not to mention uh, the revital, uh, revitalize us when our, when our shoulders drop and our hands grow weary. Uh, here's the part that I should have just skipped to right away. The coming of the Holy Spirit in and amongst uh, us means that the living God in the person of the Spirit is indeed with us, and He is present, as we will point out in later chapters, as the empowering presence. So uh, the final point tonight is just that if the pre- if this Holy Spirit is a person, then he is he is a person who is present with us. If he is a person, then he is a person who is present with us. He is a person, and he is here, literally, now. If you are a Christian, you have to believe that, <laughs> right? You have to. You have no other option but to believe the fact that th- that the Spirit is here. And so as we uh, kind of transition here in the next eight or ten minutes into a time of communion, uh, my encouragement for you as we, as we realize that the Spirit is a person, that He is here, that God is here in the person of the Spirit, that we just lean into that reality, that this week you lean into that reality, that uh, on Sunday mornings when we're gathered together with a couple more people, we lean into that reality that the Spirit is here, that He is present with us. It changes everything about the way we go about our lives if we, if we really and truly realize that when we gather together, the Spirit is present with us. The Spirit is present with us when uh, we hit a wrong chord, 
Spirit is present with us when the music is too loud. This, thanks. It says, Avery's laughing. Uh, the Spirit is present with us when that person says that thing right before church that makes you mad. The Spirit is, the Spirit is present with us when your kids cry all morning. The Spirit is present with us when uh, it's snowing outside. The Spirit is present with us when it's rainy outside. The Spirit is present with us when it's windy outside. The Spirit is present with us all the time. And it is our ability to access that truth that changes everything. And so as a people, as, a, as, the, as the church, as Grace Community Church, it's my prayer that we would become uh, more and more a people who come to the realization that the Spirit is present with us, regardless of how we feel, regardless of what we carry through those doors, that the Spirit is present. And He's present now with us today. And so, uh, Joss, if you'd just come up. We, you can just play piano. That's good. Um, uh, as we transition to communion this evening, uh, we can remember that the Spirit is with us in this process of communion and that it is actually the Holy Spirit with us um, who confirms and awakens the reality of Christ in our hearts as we receive communion. And the, the, this process of communion, Christians have always said, is a, is a tradition that is passed down to us from Jesus that is made active or alive in our hearts by the Spirit, right? That if that if communion is anything, if it's significant in any way, it's significant because the Spirit, when the people of God are gathered together, are, is working in our hearts to affirm Christ in our hearts as we receive communion together. So it's this beautiful expression of what God is doing in our midst when we receive communion together. So uh, in just a moment, we'll come to the table. Uh, we'll just come up and you can receive the elements and uh, head back to your seat. We're just going to take probably, um, we're just going to take a few minutes. Uh, and Jocelyn's going to sing, and we're going to worship for a little bit. And my, my prayer is that we would just encounter the Spirit together, that we would just come to a fuller awareness as we receive communion, as we sing, as we worship, that the Spirit of God is present with us, that He's here, that He wants to encounter our hearts. He wants to, he wants to continue the work of Christ in your heart and in my heart tonight. And He wants, uh, and he wants, to, build his, and he wants to build the kingdom of God in our midst. So, so, Paul was speaking to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I don't need it. I know it from my, in my mind. <laughs> and he was teaching them about communion. And as he was teaching uh, this Corinthian church who really didn't understand what they were doing when they were uh, receiving communion, he says this to them, For I received from the Lord that which I pass on to you, that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. And after supper, he took the cup, and in the same way, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And so whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we, as followers of Jesus in this place, whenever we come to this table, make that profession. Whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we make the, uh, we make the practical, as real as it gets, and spiritual confession that Jesus is Lord. And we proclaim his death until he comes again proclaim his death until he comes again. So the table is open. You're free to partake uh, as, as you want. Uh, we'll worship for just a moment, uh, and then uh, we'll see where the Spirit leads us, all right? We're, we'll be open to what the Spirit has for us tonight, all right?
All right, the table's open.